you grab an outline, um, if you want to take notes, and a Bible as well. I don't know if you've uh, seen the film uh, called Limitless, starring Bradley Cooper. It's a few years old now. Has anyone seen that film? Just get a sense of... Um, it's a very interesting film, and if you've watched it, you might have found yourself quite attracted to the idea of being limitless. Now, in the film, uh, the lead character, Bradley Cooper, um, starts taking a new experimental drug called MZT, and his brain becomes almost superhuman. Uh, He can write a novel in a day. Um, He gets his life together. He starts holding people's attention in conversation. He's able to earn huge amounts of money, um, internet trading. And then at the end of the film, he is uh, eventually running for president of the United States. In between, uh, things go quite badly wrong. Um, But as we watch it, the idea of, of pushing past our limits, particularly our intellectual limits, comes across as hugely attractive. And that's what technological progress can promise us, can't it? This ability to push beyond our limits in all sorts of directions, whether that's intellectual limits, physical uh, limits, um, spatial limits. As Elsa would put it in the film Frozen, maybe more of you have seen this film, to test the limits and break through. But in spite of all those advancements and in spite of all that progress, we remain inescapably limited, don't we, as human beings? We can only ever be in one place at one time. You've decided to come here to Realfield tonight, and so that means you can't be somewhere else doing something else with somebody else. And that will be true for the rest of our lives, won't it? We are embodied, flesh and blood human beings, and I can never break through that good, God-given limit. God, on the other hand, and that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight, is the all-present Lord. A few weeks ago, we thought about the fact that God is not limited by time. He is eternal. And this week, we'll see that he's not limited by space either. He is the all-present, ever-present, fully-present Lord of all. So what I'm going to be thinking about in our first heading. God is the all-present Lord Now we'll explore this wonderful attribute of God from the Bible in the first sort of half of the talk and then we'll draw out four implications for the rest um, of our time from what we've seen. Now the heading on the sheet says that God is the all-present Lord. That's what we mean when we talk about God's omnipresence. That word omni um, just means all. So God is all-present. You might have seen a TV series, Omnibus, um, or a series of books compiled together into, a, I think it's also called an omnibus. Um, it just means all the stories compiled into one, all the TV series piled into one. And over the next three weeks, we're going to get on the omnibus, you might say, and think about three attributes of God, all beginning with that word omni. So God is omnipresent, that's tonight, all present to his creation. Next week, he is omniscient, that means he's all-knowing, he knows everything. And then finally, in our last talk of the term, he is omnipotent. He possesses all power. So that's what we're going to be thinking about these next three weeks. So tonight, omnipresence. God is not bound by the limits of space. He is able to be everywhere, all at once, all of the time. And we're going to explore this idea from Psalm 139. So Hannah's going to read uh, this passage to us. If you could pick up a Bible and turn to Psalm 139. Um, Hannah's going to read... um, And as she reads, I want you to just think about one question as she's reading. Um, The question is, where is God? Where is God? I want you to think about that as Hannah's reading these verses. Um, So we'll just give you a moment to find that and then um, Hannah's going to read. 
Um, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of blessing. Thank you. I want to focus with you for a, minute, a few minutes on verses 7 to 16 of this psalm. Um, just have a look down at verse 7. David poses a question um, here that he then answers in the verses that follow. So verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Is there anywhere that David can go where God's spirit will not be? Is there anywhere he can flee to where God will not be present? Is there anywhere that we could flee to? And the psalmist answers that question with a series of three contrasts. Just look down at verses 8 to 12 and notice the contrast with me. Height and depth, verse 8. Then verses 9 and 10, east and west. And then verses 11 and 12, darkness and light. So firstly, height and depth. Um, Have a look at verse 8. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So we could climb into one of Richard Branson's new rockets and go into space, set you back about half a million pounds, so not too shabby. We could go up into space and David says God would be there. We can't see him. He's invisible, but he's there. NASA are sending people to the moon again next year. I don't know whether you read about that. And if we were to go with them and step down onto the surface of the moon, God would be there. We could reach into the far, vast, cavernous universe. And every square inch of it would be occupied by the all-present God. Now, David could go in the other direction. He could go down into the depths and God would be there too. The depths here is the, the Hebrew word sheol. It's used to describe the place of the dead. 
David could go down to his death and make his bed in the grave and God would be there. Not just a part of God, not just a bit of him, but God fully present to all of his creation in the highest heights and the deepest depths. So height and depth. Uh, Secondly, east and west. Have a look at nine and ten. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So David now pictures the great arc of creation from the rising of the sun um, to the setting of the sun. And if he settled on the far side of the sea at the setting of the sun, in all those places, God is there fully present in all of creation. I want you to notice as well, this is a great comfort for David in verse 10. He doesn't view the situation like um, Big Brother, if you know Big Brother, with God sort of eerily peering down at his creation. Nor is it like being followed on the street by someone you don't want to be followed by. That's not what David thinks of here. It's more like a child enjoying the comfort of their parents in a crowded train station. Wherever the child goes, their parent is there, holding their hand, guiding them through the hustle and bustle of life. Wherever David is, there God's hand will guide him and there his right hand will hold him fast. Wherever he is, wherever he goes, God is there. So height and depth, east and west. Thirdly, darkness and light. We sometimes hear language or maybe use language like he acts under the cover of darkness or maybe something taking place behind closed doors. Or maybe a phrase like, what, stays, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, or something like that. Things take place in the darkness of a, a nightclub or behind uh, closed doors of our rooms that would never take place in the cold light of day. But David knows that darkness does not cloud God's vision or remove his presence. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So to say that darkness will hide us from God's presence is to believe a lie. Even the darkness is not dark to God. He sees everything, every moment, as in the cold light of day. Nothing escapes his gaze Nothing is outside of his presence. David says that even in the womb, before we were born, God's presence was there. Have a look at verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. If I I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So do you see that from the moment we were conceived in the womb to the moment we go down to the grave, God is there with us. He's present creating, guiding, shepherding, overseeing. He's present in the far extremities of space. He's present in the very depths of the grave. He's present from the far east to the far west. He's present in the deepest darkness as well as in the brightest day. He is the all-present Lord. 
But how can God be present like that to all of his creation? This is a, a question we might ask. And as with all of these topics, just mind bending, isn't it? To think about how God could be like this. One, one thing to think about from the Bible is that God is not constrained as we are because he does not have a body like we do. As Jesus says in John chapter four to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. He cannot be contained or constrained by space like we can. When Solomon dedicates God's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he prays to God. And in his prayer, he alludes to this unbounded, limitless nature of God. Chapter 8, verse 27, he says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. The highest heavens cannot contain God. He cannot be squished down and restricted into one place. He fills the universe. And he fills the universe with the fullness of his being. So it's not like God playing a game of cosmic twister. This is the analogy uh, Jen Wilkin uses in her book, None Like Him. In the game of twister, I don't know if you've ever played it, um, different parts of our body get stretched across uh, the twister board. So we might have a left hand on a yellow dot and then a right foot on the red dot and a right hand on a, a green dot. But that's not what's going on with God. It's not that his little toe is in Lancaster and his right hand is in Australia or something like that. And we see this in Psalm 139. Wherever David goes, he says God is there. God in his fullness, God in his glory. Not just a bit of God, not a part of God, but God. He's present to all of space for all of time. And we need to remember God is not part of this creation is he remember the creator creature divide that we saw right at the start of this series so he's not part of this creation it's not that he's the air here that we're grabbing because he's not part of the creation and so i think we have to say i'm not quite sure how god can be present to all of creation as an invisible god that he is but he is present to all of it all of the time and that means there's no sacred space there's no holy ground god is present to every inch of this universe as the holy Lord of all. So that's all I'm going to say about this uh, topic, uh, about the content of it tonight. God is the all-present Lord. But I want to draw out four implications from what we've seen together. Hopefully this will start to uh, fill out what we've been seeing. Firstly, um, if this is all true about God, then he is all-present when we sin. God is all-present when we sin. Just having a look at Psalm 139 again and the first few verses, David knows that God is not just present out there to his creation, but that he's present to David personally and intimately. Have a look at verses one to five. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Sometimes a teenager might put a sign on their, on their bedroom door saying, off limits. I won't ask you to raise a hand if you did that as a teenager. They're trying to maintain the sense of privacy, aren't they, in their own room and with their own thoughts. But David says there's no off limits space to God. He's familiar with all of our ways, with all of our thoughts, with all of our deeds. 
Jim Packer in his book, Knowing God um, on the Sheet, writes this. Living becomes an awesome business when you realise that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient, omnipresent creator. This changes how we view everything about life, doesn't it? And it particularly changes how we view sin, because it means that every sin we commit in thought or word or deed is done in God's face. It's done in full view of our holy creator. He's present in all of it. I can try and hide away as a sinful person and commit secret sins behind closed doors. Or I can think I'm off the hook because a thought only came into my mind but didn't come out of my mouth. But there's no such distinction with God. Every sin is done in his presence. We, we sin in his face. Jeremiah writes, Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Secret places are an illusion. Darkness is as light to God. Our public lives, our private lives are ever present to him, even if we manage to hide them away from other people. And that should bring a real soberness to our lives, shouldn't it? Stephen Charnock, an old uh, Puritan writer and preacher, once wrote this. We pretend to believe God to be present everywhere, and yet many of us live as if he were present nowhere. We think to ourselves, no one knows, no one sees, but God does. And he doesn't just know and see as a distant God, but as a present God when we sin against him. So we must repent and not hide. We must confess and not conceal because nothing is hidden from God's presence. As I've been thinking about this this week, um, I think this is one of the main reasons why the thought of hell is so unbearable to think about. Just think about it. What is hell? Well, it's the presence of God with sinners who have no hope of repentance and who have no place of refuge. Hell is experiencing the holy gaze of God as we stand naked and ashamed and to do so for all of eternity. It is to be like Adam in the Garden of Eden, hiding in fear because of his sin and unable to escape. The truth of God's omnipresence should make us tremble, gives us seriousness and soberness to our lives. And I think it would be absolutely excruciating to think about were it not for the saving, atoning, forgiving work of Jesus, were it not for the gospel. Augustine writes in his commentary on the Psalms, there is absolutely no place for you to flee to. Do you want to flee from him? Rather, flee to him. We cannot hide from God, but we can hide ourselves in him, casting ourselves on the atoning work of Jesus. I find it astonishing, and we'll think more about this next week as well, that the God who knows all things and who is present to all of my sin would love me with an unchanging love and would forgive me with unhindered joy. We need to know that as Christian believers, we live not under the stern gaze of God, but under his fatherly smile. We live in the shadow of his unfailing love. Paul puts this into words in the passage some of us will be looking at tonight in Romans chapter 8. Um, just have a look at these verses with me and uh, just consider them in light of what we've been uh, seeing together so far. Okay. Let me just read it. Um, and we'll be seeing these later. 
Romans 8 verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Christian could travel up to space in Richard Branson's rocket. I was going to say, I hope some of you do do that, but I don't really, because that would be half a million pounds. It could go towards the building project. Um, We could descend down into the grave. We could live, we could die, we could face a whole range of circumstances and sufferings in life. And in all these things, we know the unbreakable love of God in Christ. We walk on this earth every day, moving from room to room, not condemned, but loved. Now, I imagine there are some of us here who've not yet taken refuge in the Lord Jesus, who've not done what we were thinking about this morning and what we're thinking about tonight. Some of you who've lived trying to run away from your all-present Lord. And if that's you, I want to say Jesus calls you to run to him, to move beyond trembling and to move to confident trust and reliance in his saving work on the cross. And by doing so, to know the all-present love and compassion of your Father God. God is present when we sin. We need to repent. But he is now in Christ, present with us in his love. Secondly, God is all-present when we suffer. This is maybe over the page. All-present when we suffer. I wonder if you've noticed one of the refrains of the Psalms. Uh, when the writers are in deep distress. You might have read some of these psalms. Lord, how long will you hide your face from me, they say. Lord, will you hide your face forever? In deepest despair, I wonder if you've been there yourselves. This is how it feels for someone who is suffering. It feels as if God has abandoned you and hidden himself from you and left you to suffer alone. It's how Jesus felt on the cross, isn't it? Forsaken by his father, abandoned by God as he suffered and died alone. But God's omnipresence is a wonderful comfort to you in your suffering. We might be experiencing deep depression or crippling anxiety or unbearable pain. And there, even there, God is present with us. We see in Psalm 139 as God's right hand holds David from east to west, the whole arc of creation. And we see it too in Psalm 23. I wonder if you ever thought of this psalm in light of God's omnipresence. Let me read some verses from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. However, present Lord is with us in the valley. He's near us when we're broken hearted. He's close to us when we're suffering. Goodness and love will follow us all the days of our life because the Lord God will be with us 
all the days of our life. He'll be with his people even as we descend into the depths of the grave. God is present when we suffer. When we suffer. And so even if we feel like he's far away from us, like he's hidden his face from us, he's there with us in all of it. <coughs> he's present when we sin. He's present when we suffer. He's present when we pray. If God is the all-present Lord, then I think prayer becomes the most logical thing in the world, doesn't it? If you know um, the story in 1 Kings where the prophets of Baal um, shout out at the top of their voices, trying to get the attention of their so-called gods, not so with the Christian. We can pray confidently to God wherever we are, whatever situation we are in. And we can pray for others, can't we? Wherever they are, whatever situation they are in, because God is present both with us and in the situations that we're praying for. And he will act in accordance with his good purposes. Every inch of this universe is a place where prayer is effective because every inch of it is filled by the all-present Lord. Finally, he's present, he's all present and we are not. This is the fourth implication to think about. I mentioned um, technology at the beginning of this talk and I'd like to come back to it in this final point. Technology is a wonderful God-given gift I don't think the Bible encourages us to be technophobes who long to be back in the Stone Age. We can use technology to do good, can't we? And to enhance our lives in so many ways. Have things like pulled pork at real food in a slow cooker. Come on, it's good. But at the same time, technology can be dangerous, can't it? When it deceives us into thinking that we can be everywhere for all people all of the time. Isn't that how technology sometimes makes us feel? that we can be everywhere for all people all of the time. We have an exceptionally advanced bit of technology in our pockets, don't we, in our smartphone. And in the space of five minutes, we can text a friend in Australia, FaceTime our family in Bristol, look at photos of somebody on holiday in France, browse some recipes for some chocolate brownies, check the football results from this afternoon, and a million other things that we might want to do. And it can make us feel like we're in a hundred different places all at once. Jen Wilkin writes this in her book, and unlike him, she says, so many of our technological advances have targeted diminishing the limits of the one place boundary on humankind. But however many people we speak to on Zoom, however many people we text in different parts of the world, we remain sitting on our sofa at home, inescapably embodied and limited by space and by time. I'm sure we also know the feeling of being overwhelmed when we try and live in a hundred different places for a hundred different people all at the same time. In reality, the more content we consume and the more connections we try and maintain, then the more discontented and the more disconnected we can feel, can't we? Jen Wilkin again, when we reach for omnipresence ourselves, we guarantee that we will be fully present nowhere, spread thin, People have divided attentions, affections, efforts and loyalties. I'm not surprised a lot of the time we feel frazzled by a constant need to be always connected. When we realise that God alone is able to be everywhere for all people all at the same time, we are freed, aren't we, to embrace our creaturely limits. We are free, as Nathan Weston said in our technology seminar that we did at Weekender, we are free to stop trying to live as a 4D person in a 3D world. We are free to be fully present where we are with the people who are right in front of us. 
Jim Elliott, um, the well-known missionary to Ecuador, once wrote home to his wife and said, wherever you are, be all there. Sometimes the best thing we can do in a situation is turn off our phone, sit down with a friend and be all there for them. To sit in our real food group, to look at those around you and to know uh, that God has given you the next hour to be here with these brothers and sisters, not somewhere else, with someone else. And so we can embrace this gift that God has given us and embrace the good God-given limit to be in one place at one time and to be all there. God is omnipresent in the heights, in the depths, from the east to the west, in the light, in the dark, God is there. And he is fully there, which means living becomes a really an awesome business, doesn't it? As Jim Packer said, because we live in a world filled, sustained by our all-present, all-loving God. I was going to give you a minute to reflect on those two questions at the bottom of the sheet, just on your own. Are there any times or places that you live as a practical atheist, forgetting that God is all present there? And then second, when are you tempted to push beyond your God-given limits? Are there any ways you'd like to change your thinking or habits in light of tonight's teaching? Let's give you a minute to think about those questions and then Joe will introduce our last song.